Episode 287 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by the new book, Seeing Around Corners by Rita McGrath. It's your go-to guide for spotting and responding to strategic inflection points in business before they happen. To find out more about Rita and the book, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash corners right now. I've spent almost all my career helping businesses reduce risk, and now I have started asking the question, is the biggest risk a business faces today actually not taking enough risk? Hey there, I'm so glad you're here. My name is Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I have the privilege each and every week to sit down with another successful and inspiring author as we dig into their latest book, bringing you the key insights and main ideas from that book and to talk about their unique insights on a number of different topics. It's not often I can say I have dined at the home of my guests, but that is the case with today's guest. His name is Steve Anderson. And Steve is the author of the brand new book, The Bezos Letters, 14 Principles to Grow Your Business Like Amazon. I'll ask Steve to share strategies used by Amazon applicable to businesses of any size, how you as an owner, CEO, manager, employee, or entrepreneur can take your business to the next level using these principles, stories of how Amazon and other businesses have embodied these principles and much, much more. And while we're on the topic of new books, I want to tell you about another recently released book called Seeing Around Corners. It's written by Rita McGrath. She's a global expert on strategy and innovation. And her book is all about spotting and responding to strategic inflection points in business before they happen. Though they're often sudden, inflection points are not random nor unexpected. Every quote-unquote overnight shift, Rita says, is actually the final stage of a process that has been subtly building over time. Through Rita's book, you can learn to spot the early warning signs and actually benefit from disruptive trends and drive your business to greater success. And I also like that she has broken down the book into short, digestible chapters with easy-to-follow strategies and concrete examples designed to help you recognize or even spark inflection points to maximize your business opportunities. We're thankful, too, that Rita is sponsoring today's episode. Again, her book is called Seeing Around Corners. How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. To find out more about it, simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash corners. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash corners. Steve Anderson has spent over 35 years shaping the insurance industry through a deeper understanding of emerging technologies and how businesses today can best integrate and leverage them. He is a sought-after speaker and influencer, and he is also the author of the Bezos Letters, where he reveals 14 principles for business growth based on the ideas and patterns that emerged when he examined Jeff Bezos' 21 annual letters to Amazon shareholders. I had to stop and do the math. Has it really been 21 plus years that Amazon's been around? (laughs) Yes, it has. (laughs) Well, actually, they're celebrating this year their 25th anniversary. 25th. I'm excited to sort of glean the key insights and main ideas that you've discovered by diving into some of this. Steve, talk first a bit about uh, why you see Bezos as, as I think your term is the master of risk and growth. Yeah, and that's that's what uh, is a, a bit of a different perspective that I've taken in the shareholder letters. And uh, they've been around, obviously, every year is released and uh, lots of different people write articles or talk about individual letters. But as I research the letters as a single narrative, uh, almost 
almost 50,000 words, a, a book by itself, mm-hmm. I actually discovered, one, obviously the principles that we'll talk a little bit about, but also this idea that one of the key mindsets is his ability to look at risk as a strategic growth option. And several of the principles talk about that. And my insurance background I've spent almost all my career helping businesses reduce risk, and now I have started asking the question, is the biggest risk a business faces today actually not taking enough risk? And so that's a bit of a unique perspective on Amazon and their growth, and I think applies to virtually any size or type of business. Yeah, you say there's a section in the book called Why the letters. And, and, and you say you don't need an advanced degree or a huge team to make any of these principles happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people might think, you know, well, Amazon, I'm never going to be an, uh, an Amazon. <laughs> and you're right. You aren't more than likely. There were very <laughs> unique things at the time going on that Bezos was able to take advantage of. However, aren't you curious how he grew? Mm. And are there some lessons that can be learned about what he did and how he did it along the way. And and that really is my take on the letters and what businesses can get out of uh, reading the book and diving into uh, the shareholder letters a bit deeper. Well, there's one line, Steve, early in the book that, that stood out to me, and that was, you'll never be able to grow like Amazon if you're not willing to risk failure. A failure, in other words, isn't a bad thing. Uh, what What makes for, in your mind, a successful failure? Yeah, you know, encourage successful failure is the um, the first principle, and it really is this idea that in order to grow, you you're going to have to test, mm. and to test, you create experiments, and by its very nature, an experiment means you're going to fail some, and so that's what first caught my attention when looking at Bezos and how he talks about failure, and. In the culture at Amazon, every employee is encouraged to test an experiment. And he says in one of his letters, I believe Amazon is the best place in the world to fail because he understands and has built the culture around the idea that, yes, failure is not good. We don't want it. But in too many businesses, employees don't necessarily fear failure, but they fear the consequences Mm -hmm. of failure. And at Amazon, you can all actually be celebrated by testing and trying something new. Now, really in the same breath, I always have to say, Amazon has an intolerance for incompetence. Mm. Every employee is expected to bring their very best every day. So it's not willy-nilly who cares failure, (laughs) but it's strategic. And and again, back to risk-taking and a risk mindset, using risk strategically to find out what are the product services platforms that are going to bring more customers to us. Now, I should mention that that Steve divides the book into four sections or growth cycles that he's identified, and each of these 14 principles falls into one of these four growth cycles. The first one is test, and related to that, we talked about successful failure. Uh, Principle three, I'm going to skip around here a bit. No uh, problem. Relates to invention and innovation. What keeps most companies, Steve, from inventing like Amazon? 
So the principle is practice, dynamic invention, and innovation. And I actually worked a while on choosing the right words there because mm. it's not just innovation. For me, innovation is taking something already in place and improving it. Before innovation, you need invention. You need something new. And Amazon is really good at inventing. Uh, and in fact, he uses a phrase that I really like throughout the letters that we invent on behalf of the customer. And so invention and then innovation is throughout. And they've put in place culture, mindset, and tools that they use to help generate that. But every employee is expected to innovate and invent no matter where they are in the organization. And I think that is something that sets them apart. And frankly, what people see at Amazon is they're always coming out with something new, something many people think that's crazy. Yet they're testing, they're experimenting, they're failing, they're iterating, they're growing, and they come up with things that work really, really well. Well, in the chapter on obsessing over customers, this was one of my favorites. Steve says that too many companies mistakenly focus on their products and services over their customers. And Steve, I, I was hoping you could explain what you mean by that, because I think most companies would say that focusing on products and services is focusing on their customers. <laughs> well, and, and I would agree with that in this way. If I'm inventing on behalf of the customer, every product and service that I have, mm. develop, I innovate, has to go through the lens of, is this better for customers, even if in the short term, it's not better for the company? And, and that's part of the idea. Bezos thinks long-term. That's one of the other principles. And long-term thinking for Bezos is... Ultimately, if it's better for the customer, it will be better for the company and the shareholders. So a quick example, Prime, right? We take mm. Prime for granted now, but honestly, in the early 2000s, when he came up with this idea and it was Bezos' idea and he pushed for it, free two-day shipping for a flat annual fee. Everybody, including senior executives at Amazon, thought he was crazy. <laughs> How can we afford this? How can we do this? He was convinced and he had a gut feeling that if it's better for the customer, it will be better for the company and shareholders ultimately. And certainly that's proved itself out over the years. But at the time, it was a big bet and nobody knew if it was going to work or not. Although they had tested some, they had super saver shipping, you know, which was buy $25 and then you get free shipping. So they had tested some of this along the way. Now, let me, if I may address the obsess over customers. Mm. Most businesses, as you've indicated, know that they need to take care of their customers. And typically, the words used are customer focus, uh, customer experience, customer service, customer journey. At Amazon, he used the word obsess over customers in the very first letter, 1997. And obsess has a very different connotation than any of the other terms we use around customers. It is in some cases, over-the-top focus when we talk about obsession mm. sometimes has a negative connotation. But at Amazon, everything goes through the lens of, is this better for the customer? If it is, then we should explore doing it. And I think it's that obsession that you see as one of the core reasons why Amazon has grown the way they have. Well, the world and I think uh, Wall Street obviously uh, rewards, as you point out in the book, Steve, short-term thinking. Uh, what are some ways Amazon has managed to to buck that trend that maybe others can, can learn from? 
Yeah, and that was something uh, – the, the 97 letter uh, actually was a, a very important letter, uh, certainly to Bezos. Uh, the reason I say that is every letter since – he has attached the original 1997 letter and refers back or tells readers that they should refer back to that letter. Mm-hmm. Well, that started at me asking the question, why? Well, one of the reasons is there's a section in the original 97 letter that's called It's All About the Long Term. Um, and and again, I'm going to quote here out of that shareholder letter. We believe that a fundamental measure of our success will be the shareholder value we create over the long term, and long term is italicized. Wall Street rewards short-term quarterly earnings call profit sales, not long term. And in fact, during those early years, Amazon was, well, called uh, Amazon.bomb and various other things because they didn't make a profit. They plowed everything back into building the infrastructure that we now know is one of the reasons Amazon is so successful. But it took 10, 12 years. And and that's just not what companies normally do today. What's interesting is now Wall Street expects that out of Amazon, you know, and, and they mm-hmm. they have sort of taught some of the analysts to think longer term, but it's really hard for a company to make that shift from short-term to long-term thinking. But I believe it's a key, again, to business growth. Now, didn't Amazon influence Apple in this regard? Yeah, I, I and, and I talk about Apple as I was writing the book. Apple, and, and I can't tell, I, I, I can't verify that they did it because of Amazon. But I talk about Apple shifting uh, when they announced they were no longer going to report quarterly sales figures for several of, of their products, so I, the, the iPhone, the iPad, et cetera, and how Wall Street and their stock price took a significant hit because of it. And that was the example I, I used to show the difficulty of shifting, but Apple didn't back down. And, and so they have continued to move forward. And again, you can see their stock price you know, rebounded. Here's another example of long-term thinking, again, out of the 97 letter. He, he has a paragraph where he talks about employees, and he, he's talking about that it's not easy to work at Amazon, and that's probably still the case, and he acknowledged it in 97. But here's what he said, but we are working to build something important, something that matters to our customers, something that we can tell our grandchildren about. And that caught my attention. Here he is, young, probably not even really thinking about his grandchildren, yet he is thinking generationally, something we can tell our grandchildren about. And I think that's really fascinating because that kind of long-term vision is unusual. And one of the principles, I think, could help any business to shift their thinking more long-term. I'm uh, leading a mastermind retreat uh, outside the Nashville area this weekend, a facility called Deer Run Retreat Center you may be familiar with. I am. I'm looking forward to talking to the group about one of the principles in particular that you highlight, and it's the one I want to hit on next. Talk about the need to generate what you call high-velocity decisions and the importance 
of understanding the two decision types as you've identified them. Yeah. So again, in his letters, and and I keep coming back because these are the things Bezos talks about in his letters. He describes two types of decisions that businesses uh, make. Type one decisions are decisions that are hard, if not impossible, to reverse. They're bet the farm decisions. Mm. Type two decisions are decisions that can be and should be made quickly, and I'm quoting here now, by high judgment individuals or small groups. Type two decisions are decisions that should be made quickly, probably without all the information that you would want, and are easily reversible. So if we decide to move forward on this particular step or project, and and we get down the road a little bit, as he calls it, walking through the door, and we don't like what we see on the other side, we change direction by a different decision, or we turn around and come back and, and start all over again. What he says is, as businesses grow, too often type two decisions morph into type one decisions. And this would look like, for example, multiple meetings to make a decision, multiple approval levels, right? How often have you heard just getting something done is so difficult when in Amazon's case, they default to action and they let those decisions be made low because they really are low impact in terms of the entire organization. And I think there's some major things that can be learned from just thinking about your decision-making process. And I, I recall one executive you quoted as referring to meetings at Amazon as as magical. I don't think I've ever heard a meeting referred to as being magical. It isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, and part of that is how they run meetings. So mm. um, a meeting called at Amazon first, it does not have PowerPoint or Keynote or any slide uh, presentation. They are banned at Amazon mm. worldwide. Instead, the person calling the meeting that needs a decision is required to write a maximum of six-page memo about the decision. And it generally starts, certainly if it's product-oriented, it starts with what's called a future press release. So they actually have to write the press release before they even get the decision to move forward with developing the product, service, or platform. And Bezos says, he describes this again in one of his letters, that memo, he says, should probably take a week or more to create. And then that memo is passed out at the beginning of the meeting, and everybody spends the first 10, 15, 20 minutes reading the memo, so everybody's on the same page. There's nobody there who doesn't have the right information. And I think that's why the description of magical comes in, because now you're asking questions about the data, the product, the whatever, but you're not spending and wasting time talking about what we want to do. And I think that's really interesting. And also think about how many meetings would be cut out if the person calling the meeting actually had to work a week to set up the meeting correctly, right? And and so it's the idea of slowing down to speed up. 
So if I understand type one versus type two, type one decisions are usually more strategic and maybe come into play when you're thinking about uh, changing what you do. Yes. Versus type two being more operational and come into play when maybe you're re-evaluating how you do it, right? Yeah, I, I would say yes in general, but but let me give you a quick uh, recent example. Uh, Amazon, it's well known, had a contest for the city to put its second headquarters mm. called HQ2. They spent 18 months and gathered data and, and did research and write all of those kinds of things. Came down, they ended up deciding to split that into two different places. One was Long Island City, right outside uh, Manhattan, New York. And the other was Crystal City, Virginia, literally on the other side of the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. Well, as you probably remember, a lot of pushback out of New York City. Mm-hmm. What did they do? What did Amazon do? They pulled out. And how fast? Real fast. <laughs> Real fast. So default to action. And when they realize, and again, this is my interpretation, I don't have any inside information, but when they realized they didn't have the support that they were told they had, then they literally said, you know what, we don't want to go there. And what looked like a type one decision, meaning, okay, picking a city for a new headquarters and spending X billions of dollars and 25,000 employees, that seems like a type one decision. Mm. It actually turned out to be type two because they could reverse it because there was nothing that they had done that was not reversible. Mm. So yes, to a point, and, and I think that tension is good in terms of, is this a type one or a type two decision and how fast should we make it? I never would have thought of that as a type two decision. I appreciate that that example. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean, Steve, to accelerate time with technology and, and why would we want to use technology to, as, as, as you suggest, make a part of our business obsolete. So what started the book idea in the first place was the research and really work I've done over the last 20 years uh, in the insurance industry, looking at emerging and new technology and mm. its impact on customers, but it's also its impact on insurance coverages. You know, are there gaps that are being created because of how we're using drones, for example? And one of the things I realized was that technology continues to develop rapidly and more rapidly today than it did five years ago, than it did 10 years ago. And so businesses don't have the time they used to, to kind of sit back and look at, okay, this new thing, let's say 3D printing or blockchain or, you know, whatever we want to talk about, how does that affect my business? Well, in the past, you could spend a year or two years kind of looking at it and, and thinking about it and seeing what might happen. In today's world, you just don't have that amount of time. So technology is accelerating time. And, and we experience that in different ways. It's, you know, certainly at, at my stage of the career, I, I look back at, at the, the last 40 years and go, golly, where's the time gone, right? It's it's gone faster. Or we look forward, yeah, you know, so my, my two daughters with grandchildren, you know, the days can get long, you know, so we actually view time differently depending on where we are at. But... Amazon does such a great job of looking ahead. I mean, even think about, I mentioned drones. Uh, Actually, Bezos, probably now six years ago on 60 Minutes, first announced that they were experimenting with drone delivery. That's, again, long-term thinking. It's also invention. How can drones do that? Mm -hmm. And what do we look at today? Well, we're all going, oh, yeah, of course we're going to have drones delivery. We just have to figure out some of the regulatory and, and other stuff. Again, that's an example of using technology. Fast forward, how can we use it? And are we experimenting enough to figure out what we need to do? 
do to make it a reality. Mm. And Amazon does that. And I mean, I could go on and on <laughs> and I won't. So I'll let a pause. So, uh, you know, I, I get excited about this because I just think there's so much to learn. Well, we've uh, dipped our toe into the uh growth cycles of test, build, and accelerate. My last couple of questions come out of the scale growth cycle section. Uh, focusing on high standards is, is, is one of the principles there. And regarding this one, Steve, I think most businesses in theory would go, well, sure, we want high standards. But I think oftentimes they can pay lip service to that. Uh, what can we learn from Amazon to help take it beyond just mere lip service? One of the things Bezos identified very early on is that high-quality, top-notch employees were going to be key to maximizing their growth potential. And one of the criticisms of Amazon is that it's a hard place to work. And interestingly, uh, here in Nashville, that headquarters announcement kind of a side announcement was that Amazon was building and bringing 5,000 jobs to downtown Nashville to create what they have called their center of excellence for transportation. So at Amazon, transportation is everything that happens from when you click buy to when it shows up on your doorstep. So all the fulfillment centers and, and trucking and now their air fleet and right all those things come under transportation. All of that to say I was invited to one of their big recruiting at the Ryman Auditorium downtown. This was earlier this year. And really interesting one, just to see how they do that. They brought busloads of, of college kids from middle Tennessee all over and, you know, just getting them aware of the opportunities. Mm. But one of the questions to David Clark, who is a senior VP, been at Amazon for 20 years, almost from the beginning, was asked is that exact question. I've heard or it's said that Amazon is a hard place to work. And his response was, it is. They're not apologetic about the, that fact. Again, echoing Bezos, he says, we're doing important work on behalf of our customers and we only want the best hire. So again, real short, I explain this a lot in the book, but mm. they have a position at Amazon still today that for many of the job openings, uh, it's called bar raisers. And so this goes back to uh, the 98 letter where he talks about hiring practices and the three quick questions that he said in 98, we asked people to consider before making a hiring decision. Will you admire this person? And will this person raise the average level of effectiveness of the group they're entering? Mm. And in fact, he says, I want people to say, boy, I'm glad I got in early because the standards are so high now, I don't know that I could get hired. <laughs> right? So they're continually looking to raise the bar, hence the name Bar Raiser. And the third question is, along what dimensions might this person be a superstar? And, and, and that was an interesting one because it's not just about skill and technical expertise. It's about what else do they like to do that, that rounds them out as a person. So the Bar Raiser is a actual position that people are nominated for. They go through extra hiring training, but they've already demonstrated an ability to hire high quality people. That bar raiser can veto almost any other manager's hiring decision. And they actually sit in, uh, typically sit in kind of that last hiring meeting. And they, they can say, no, I don't think this person's going to fit, is a good fit for what you want. Now, think about that at a, at a company. Think about a, a, a supervisor or a division manager who has somebody else in the room who can tell him, no, you can't hire that person. Think of the culture clash 
<laughs> now, right? What do you mean? It's my department. What are you telling me I can't hire? But they have built in mechanisms to help keep the standard high. And even now, Amazon struggles. They have, you know, they had a huge job fair just a few weeks ago. They have 30,000 positions open. They're looking to hiring people, but they're not just hiring anybody. Uh, So that's a different mindset when we talk about a focus on high standards. Oh, one more principle I want to dive into is, is indeed the last one that you talk about. Explain the thought process, Steve, behind it's always day one. So this is a phrase that uh, Bezos uses all the time in all hands meetings. His office building in Seattle, where he has his office, is called the Day One Building. Mm. It is a phrase that he started using early on in the letters, and certainly over the last probably ten or fifteen years, the, it, the he ends the letter with something close to this. As always, I attach a copy of our original 97 letter. It remains day one. So day one is a concept of what were we like when we first started? Mm. What were we like on day one? You know, Bezos, people forget, actually, I think, that Bezos was on his hands and knees putting books in packages and (laughs) taking them to the post office in the back of his, his car. He started where virtually every other business started. And he keeps hammering home the fact that Amazon, if they don't keep that day one mentality, then they will become a day two company. Uh, And actually, he was asked, and he writes about this in the 2016 letter, uh, Jeff, what does day two look like? Uh, And he was asked that by an employee. And here's how he responded. Day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, (laughs) followed by death. Hmm. And that is why it's always day one. Now, he goes on to say, you know, that could take 20 years to happen. But once you lose that original mindset, you are on a downward spiral as a company. So keeping that day one excitement, mentality, how can we serve customers better, at least for Amazon, and they have now over 650,000 employees, is still a key concept. Well, we've hit on uh, more than half of these principles, uh, so I, I've not managed to touch on them all. Uh, but I do want to give you a chance to share anything else from the book you want to make sure we know, Steve, before I move on to some questions not directly related to the book. Sure. Um, real quick, I would just highlight um, principle six, which is understand your flywheel. That, I think, is probably the hardest principle to grasp and maybe the most important. They're all important. They all interact with each other. But the flywheel comes from Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. It's actually chapter eight, where he describes how businesses move from being good to great is by understanding what are the inputs needed to keep us going Mm. as a business. That was published in October 2001. Bezos invited Collins to their senior leadership retreat in September of 2001, just before the book was published. And at that retreat, Collins talked about the flywheel and those senior leaders actually sketched out Amazon's flywheel that they have continued to use as their engine of growth. That's why I think it's important. 
and again, I, I could go on about that, <laughs> but um, I, I know we're running out of time. But that would I would just add that as a important component to start looking at. Well, I, I failed to mention this at the outset, but the uh, author credits on the front of this book say Steve Anderson with Karen Anderson. Who is this mysterious Karen Anderson person? Oh, she <laughs> is my bride of 44 years. So yes, I actually did write this book with my wife. <laughs> and, and actually, one of the questions is, how did that go? And I... I, I we both say now, I think we're still married, but uh, <laughs> actually she's a uh, amazing book strategist and editor, and uh, the book would not be seeing the success it is uh, without her uh, writing it and, and input. So it was a great collaboration. That's awesome. Well, uh, in regard to books that you have read and enjoyed over the last few years, what are the titles? You mentioned Jim Collins earlier, and that may be one of them, but what are one or two titles that really jump out to you as having had an impact on your career? Yeah, I thought about this uh, actually uh, a little bit because uh, you, you gave me this question a little early. And uh, you know the one that came to mind, which is a, a really old one, but the original Michael Gerber, The Entrepreneurial Myth. Mm. And I would say the key concept there that I have taken with me probably from the 80s when I first read it is working on your business, not in your business. And you know, lots of people talk about that today, but that was a, a concept that really helped me uh, in my uh, business journey. Well, I mentioned at the top that you're a sought-after speaker, so I got to ask, what would be some tips that you would recommend for delivering a, a solid talk that's impactful and, and memorable? I think the key is to make sure you have one overall concept that you're trying to deliver. Hmm. And, you know, I've done everything from, you know, 45-minute keynote type to all day or four hour all morning workshops, I think the principle still applies. What is it that you're trying to communicate? And probably, you know, three points uh, and then supporting material. And, and for me, what's key is stories. People want information. People remember the stories that describe the principle. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the things it, just in the book is the stories surrounding that give it a little more life and, and flesh those things out. And just from a technical standpoint, uh, don't use bullets on your slides. <laughs> Images uh, typically work much better. Now, there are situations where you are communicating you know, information that that might be appropriate, but I certainly over the years have moved more to images and stories to describe what I'm trying to uh, get across. And, and you've done such a great job in the book and with us today, illustrating those principles through stories. So I appreciate that. I'd be curious to know what going forward this book is going to make possible for you. Maybe some predictions, some things that are coming up or you hope are coming up in the future based on this book. Yeah, a couple of things. One is I'm going to go back to uh, my lovely wife, Karen, and uh, one of her phrases as she's talking to uh, aspiring authors is that authors don't make money on their book. Right. They make money on what their book makes possible. And so we have built out and are continuing to build out some tools to help readers of the book, not just understand the principles, but now how do I actually apply them in my business situation and some you know, video courses and potentially, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but some workshops and things like that, that those who want extra help will be able to uh, to get it. 
And I think the second thing is that, and this is one of the original purposes for writing a book, is that we've actually now sold foreign rights in 10 different countries. And so speaking to larger audiences was one of my my goals. And, and certainly the topic is, is good. And um, I think the book is resonating with people who want to understand a bit better. So I'm hoping uh, to do a bit of international travel and uh, it, enjoy some of those perks that coming come along with uh, was speaking well deserved well the book again is called the bezos letters 14 principles to grow your business like amazon written by our guest today steve anderson with his beautiful bride karen anderson steve thank you so much for being a part of the show i really appreciate you you coming on today jeff i really enjoyed our conversation thanks for having me don't miss your chance to dig deeper into this episode and steve's book the bezos letters plus the book he recommended the entrepreneurial myth by michael gerber and the book sponsoring today's episode by Rita McGrath Sing Around Corners. Get all the information you need about these books and more at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 287 for episode 287. Do you have a comment or question or maybe feedback about the Read to Lead podcast you'd like to pass along? If so, consider emailing me directly, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Be sure and join me next week when I'll be sharing my conversation with Mackie Musavi, author of the book, The High Achievers Guide. Transform your success mindset and begin the quest to fulfillment. That's next week on the Read to Lead podcast. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Oh, 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 oh,